Welcome to the Thriving Artist Podcast, a feature of the Clark Hewlings Fund for Visual Artists. The Clark Hewlings Fund exists to provide training, introductions, and funding for working artists to turn working artists into thriving artists. I'm Daniel Degree, your host. This episode, I'd like to give a shout out to our New York listeners. We appreciate you tuning in to the Thriving Artist Podcast and recognize that you're known for fantastic artists like Edward Hopper and Helen Frankenthaler. Now, our guest today is John Firth. John is the CEO of the advisory group Firth & Associates and is the Vistage Chair for Brooklyn, through which he advises CEOs and business owners of New York City-based companies. Now, Vistage is an executive network and business advisory organization with 472 member industries and 1,245 cities represented. John has held senior positions as the head of strategy at Hitachi Consulting, Discovery Communications, Sony Corporation, and Rollenberger Strategy Associates. He's also author of a forthcoming book, Fearless Disruption, a guide to the new realities of business and leadership in the 21st century. Welcome to the show, John. Thank you. Glad to be here. So, John, uh, take a minute and tell us just a little bit more in your own words about you and your work. Um, I have been a business consultant for about 26, 27 years. Uh, I did my MBA at NYU. Before that, I was actually an artist, too. I was a composer. Uh, My undergraduate degree was in music at Harvard. And I went to Germany uh, and worked, studied, and um, lived as a musician and composer. And uh, unfortunately, that didn't pay the bills. So I decided I had a choice. I had an invitation either to go write music for Hollywood films or to do my MBA, and I decided to do an MBA. So um, I live in Brooklyn, New York, and about half an hour, I mean, half a mile from where I was born in Brooklyn Heights. Yeah, we're both in Brooklyn, actually. Uh, I think we couldn't throw a baseball and hit each other right now. But uh, yeah, we were talking just before the show started about, uh, you know, Brooklyn. Uh, a lot of people have a lot of pride around Brooklyn as distinct from New York City proper. Uh, because if Brooklyn, one, it used to be a city, but two, if it were still its own municipality, it would be the largest landmass city in the United States, which I think few people realize. Exactly. Uh, it's a great place to live. Uh, lots of artists, uh, good businesses, uh, great community culture. I think probably of all the boroughs in New York, this is the one that holds tightest together as a community. Well, it is definitely the coolest and the coolest people are there. Wouldn't you agree, John? <laughs> yes, absolutely. I, I've done work for Brooklyn Academy of Music as a uh, consultant, and that was always what they prided themselves on. That they had the coolest audience of any audience in New York City. Exactly. I go there a lot, actually. Uh, I was just there the other day. Well, let's bring up Brooklyn Academy of Music. So we call that BAM for short. And you've worked with companies of various sizes and net worths. Does your consulting role change with the size or worth of the company or whether it's uh, a nonprofit or an arts educational institution like BAM? Um, to a certain extent, yes. Uh, the bigger the company, let's say Sony which, and Deutsche Bank, which are probably the two largest I've ever consulted, they're so complex. And you know, part of my role as a consultant is to cut through the complexity with some sort of insights and guidance so they can make better decisions. The smaller you get, obviously the complexity is less, but then it's really uh, more of a sort of teaching framework where you make them aware of what they probably don't know what's going to happen next, i.e. as they get bigger, certain problems begin to pop up that they may not even know exist. Uh, complexity increases and you have to prepare them for that. So to a certain extent, it is there is quite a difference. The similarities are that indeed, at the end of the day, what makes you successful in business is pretty much always the same. Um, you know, I always like to say the number one reason why a company fails is very simple. They run out of money. 
Um, and there's really no two ways to, to cut it. Uh, you have to be able to be financially secure in any situation to be able to build and grow. So from that point of view, a lot of the rules are the same. Well, that's an interesting, um, I want to follow that trail of, of thought for a second. So um, you talk about that, I mean, we, we often use this idea of growth as sort of a, this, the carrot uh, when we're talking with entrepreneurs about their business trajectory. We want sustainability, of course, but then eventually once you get past being self-sustaining, the goal is always growth, growth, growth. And with growth, as you're pointing out, uh, comes complexity. And with complexity of the business comes uncertainty. And with that uncertainty, there's a need to figure out how to make better uh, business decisions. And so if that sort of catches us up to what you've said, I want to ask, what information um, do you use to assess a business's current effectiveness? Is it just a matter of seeing their economic growth pattern or revenue, or, or is there more to it? Well, that's an interesting question in the context of, is, it difference, uh, is, is there a difference to how you can sell a small company versus a large company? And they're actually, the kind of information I use is greatly different for a variety of reasons. For one thing, small companies tend to be flying under the radar screen. Uh, it's hard to find external data that means a lot to a small company because they may be working in a very niche business or in a small sub-segment, something that nobody's really paying attention to, or they're in such a populated segment, let's say IT consulting, that you know has IBM, Accenture, all sorts of other consulting companies in there. And if they're a 20 or $30 million company, you know, they're, not, they're still not going to show up in any data. And quite frankly, some of the data about, about the industry is more about the big companies. So it's very hard when working with a small company to use any external data that has any real significance. So there you're really, really dependent on the internal data they have. So, um, and in some cases, they don't even have proper financial systems. So often you can't even rely on any internal financial data outside of what maybe their bookkeeper is keeping their their, their, uh, the books that they're keeping. So you really, at that point, are more reliant on doing the coaching, the listening, asking the right questions, and listening to the story that the CEO and his team are constructing as they go along. And then you're listening constantly for things that don't make sense, uh, mindset issues, beliefs about their business, about business that just are either not logical or clearly not true. Um, so it's much more an oral kind of give and take as opposed to sitting down with reams of data and going through it. So if you work for a company like Sony, you've got tons of data. They show up in just about every data set, and you're doing a lot of just pouring through data. But you also should never just rely on data. You've got to also have those conversations with the senior leadership, and they have to be as deep as the ones you have with a small company, but uh, you just have more data to go by. Yeah, it's interesting when we talk about um, seeing a small company's growth and we talk about their growth trajectory, or their growth pattern, it almost implies that there is a, a fixed concept of, of the map, the, of the trajectory that every business takes um, in the market. So you can sort of say, I've, I've crossed this milestone relative to other businesses. And that, that's even changed over the years. You know, it used to be that you judged the size of a business, since we're talking about size, um, by how many employees you had. You know, you're at a cocktail party and somebody says, oh, how big's your business? Uh, and you say, what do you mean? They go, well, how many employees you have? And actually now with the rise of the, of the contingent workforce, 
there's fewer questions. The savvier people are asking fewer questions about how many employees you have and more questions about how much revenue <laughs> do you have coming in. And I think um, to get to this, this place, a small business needs to obviously first get past the basics of being sustainable. And you sort of pointed out that there's no external data source that can, that can measure um, where you are on that trajectory very often in a small business or, or what sustainability really looks like. You have to rely on the internal data. And so my question is, is there a conflict there also? Do you think that businesses or even specifically small businesses risk their sustainability in pursuing growth? You know, maybe getting ahead of themselves and they, they're going after growth, but they don't have in place the things they need to make it sustainable and growth actually becomes uh, a danger um, if that's not true. Oh, yeah. No, it's absolutely a truism that you can grow, your, grow yourself to bankruptcy. Uh, I have uh, one very aggressive young man that I work with who is uh, absolutely hell-bent on becoming a billion-dollar business sometime, you know, rather sooner than later. And um, in his ambition to grow as fast as possible, he hasn't been able to turn a profit. And um, he is otherwise doing very, very well. And one of the conversations we're having for 2018 is what is the ideal growth rate that he needs to have so that he at least doesn't jeopardize things by running out of money, i.e. the cash flow issue. And it's been quite a long conversation. He's beginning to get it. Um, it was a bit of a turnaround situation because things were really quite a mess. Uh, his um, business partner, and he parted ways, and he had to sort of figure everything out on his own. But he's done an excellent job doing that. And now we just need to get his mindset to the fact that he has the danger of outgrow or growing too fast, i.e., investing more than he may have available. And that, that happens a lot. People who don't understand that it is a bit of a trade-off early on. Even if you have very wealthy investors and they're giving you millions of dollars, you can still grow yourself into bankruptcy very quickly. On the other hand, you can also be so obsessed with your profitability to the point where you're not growing and you're just sort of milking the cow. And uh, I have a couple of clients who do that, make an incredible amount of money, but every day is a hardship because they're squeezing so hard to get every last drop out of their business, they're literally driving themselves insane uh, and wondering why they're not growing. So absolutely, there's a give and take on, on both sides of the equation. Well, that's interesting because it, it seems like the next logical place and, uh, to go and, and sort of what's coming out of your answer is that... Um, your business goals really need to evolve during that pattern of growth. And so, for instance, you're talking about your colleague that um, his business goal right now, or, or has been to date, a focus on very rapid scale. Grow, 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 almost everything else in sustainability be damned. But um, one could also focus on uh, creating a return for investors, if there are investors, or, or showing a profit. Um, you're mentioning that his rapid scale is causing him to pump everything sort of, you know, back into the business in a way that maybe doesn't necessarily generate a profit yet. Um, so you can actually scale fast and operate in the red. Uh, and another possible goal might be, you know, building in sort of sustainable infrastructure, sort of thinking about where we are for the future. So I want to ask you this, um, you know, our target audience is, is typically working artists who we refer to as artist entrepreneurs, and we often refer to the working artist as an artist CEO or a CEO of their own business. Mm -hmm. um, how do you think a CEO needs to change the goals of the business as that business grows? 
Uh, that's an excellent question. Um, you know, part of my work is indeed to help CEOs navigate uh, their own mindsets and their own ways of think- thinking of the business that are either not correct or indeed should be put behind them because it's it's past a certain point. And that's that's very hard. And that is one of the tricks of growth is, you know, from the point of view of hiring, when do you hire a chief marketing officer or a finance person? When do you know it's time to um, hire more salespeople or uh, expand the portfolio of products? Um, that's all part of, of growth and decisions you have to make. And at the end of the day, it really is about your ability to make good decisions. And often that's, a, well, it is indeed a learned skill. I don't think anybody's popped out of, you know, they popped on the scene making great decisions from day one. Um, you make some bad ones, you learn from them, and it's hard to do that without some sort of a mentor or some sort of group of people who can can help you navigate your own decision-making. Um, and again, that has to do with, I guess in the case of an artist, of when do they have to get a dealer, uh, when do they start courting museums and, and people, collectors, when do they notice that their style needs maybe some shifts to it, to um, recognizing that they have a financial obligation to themselves and their family and that art is, is as much about the finances as it is about the art. But you really do need to, to navigate growth and understand what's going to come next because, for, frankly, for the most part, nobody knows what's going to happen next. Um, in fact, nobody knows what's going to happen next. And uh, the challenge for young people and, and entrepreneurs are they literally, literally do not know what they don't know. And so people like myself and others who, who work with entrepreneurs and, and smaller companies spend a lot of our time saying, to make this decision, this is probably what's going to happen. But if you make this decision, this is probably what's going to happen. Everything from, you know, if you court investors to get money to fund your growth, this is probably what you're going to expect. It's a long haul. And uh, then you're going to have somebody who feels they have a say in business, depending on how much you sell to them. Likewise, if you don't go out and get investors, you know, you'll be bootstrapping for a long time. Think about what that means for the growth and for your own lifestyle. So it's, it's really a lot about just opening it up and giving them scenarios about their decisions and the effect they'll have. Now, we're talking about CEOs making decisions without necessarily being able to see the outcome without some help. Uh, from people who have done this before and seen the pattern mm-hmm. and sort of saying, you know, if you if you put in X, you get Y out of the machine. If you put in Y, you get Z out of the machine. Um, but that takes me back to something you sort of said in the start of your answer and I, I want to dig into, which is aside from the issue of, of predicting what you can get and dealing with the issue of uncertainty, you sort of suggested that there's some freedom uh, for a CEO to um, decide how they think about the business and what they want. So you talked about their mindset and their ways of thinking um, and being able to apply those as core business objectives. And in essence, it's not just there is one right formula for a business, but you sort of get out of the business what you want as long as you know what you want in advance and put into it intelligently. So my question is this. Um, how does a business decide on its core objectives? Uh, I mean, is it always about growth? Because I think of social entrepreneurships, for instance, where um, there's a balance between uh, a desire to be profitable and a desire to do public good. So, so how does the CEO or the artist CEO decide what it is they want to have be their business objective? Um, that's interesting because I do deal with that in my book. Um, and uh, there's a 
key learning I had late in writing the book that comes from Jeff Bezos, who is you know the master disruptor of of the 21st century with Amazon. And what he said, I think, is very, very important for people to understand, which is in the world of disruption, certainly Amazon is, is you know, a great disruptive company, more stays the same than changes. And that is really a truism. If you look at Amazon's model, they didn't tell people how to change how they read or to change how they read or even what they should be reading and how they should receive. All they said is, we will get you printed material this is you know, 20 years ago, um, when you want it, how you want it, and at a price that's more reasonable, maybe you're paying. That in itself was a huge disruptive event because it put bookstores out of business, it changed the publishing industry uh, in ways that I don't even think he planned. But he had this belief, and it was true, it's one of the fundamental value propositions for, for success uh, in just about anything you do, which is, if people can get more of what they want, when they want it, and at a price that's cheaper than they're currently getting it, you'll be a success. And that really is all they did. And then they used some technology. They didn't even invent the technology. They used pretty standard technology. Um, Bantam Books had a back-end software uh, program that Jeff Bezos started using to buy books and sell books. And it just took off from there. So when you bring it to, to a small company or an entrepreneur, Part of what I think most people have to understand is there's a little bit of freedom, but there's still a lot of stuff that you're not going to change and that has to be there. So, for example, if an artist, uh, or let me put it differently, one of the ways you have to make decisions is indeed the kind of information insights you get. And as I said before, small businesses have a little bit of problem because a lot of external data may not be helpful. That said, there's still a lot of small companies out there. There's 28 million alone in the United States. So there are communities you can go to. Certainly the internet yields a lot of information. You need to be very careful about the decisions you're making because you can't reinvent the wheel. Uh, there's so much out there that's already established and works and you don't wanna go out and just think you're gonna decimate everything, change everything and actually find an audience or, or find um, consumers of your products or services. So yes, there's a little bit of freedom, but there's also got to be an acceptance that the whole world will not change on a dime just because you think it should. That's interesting because um, you know, the concept of disruption, I'm going to ask you more about it in a moment, uh, as well as your book on disruption in the second segment of the show on disruption and leadership. Mm -hmm. um, but I, you know, one of the thought processes I have is, wow, that word is used a lot. And some people, it's, uh, it's like the word viral. People think, well, how do I do a viral post? As though there's a guarantee if you just do some formula that it'll be viral, or there's a guarantee if you do the right formula, you'll be disruptive. And uh, unfortunately, if it was a formula, um, it wouldn't be disruptive. And so there's an allure of the disrupt of, of being disruptive uh, that very often can pull us in as though we think, you know, there's sort of a formula and we can execute on it. Um, I will ask you more about that. But first, I want to uh, turn to the audience and say, if you're finding value in what you're hearing, a gift of $15 per month lets you sponsor this show's ongoing broadcast. And a portion of our funding also goes to deliver direct education to artists who've demonstrated a clear achievable plan for transforming their businesses into self-sustaining and thriving ones that fill the world with art. So share this commitment 
with us now at clarkhulingsfund.org slash donate. That's clarkhulingsfund.org slash donate. We'd certainly appreciate it. Now, John, I do want to ask you about your forthcoming book, which um, bears the title Fearless Disruption. You know, disruption, as we stipulated, is kind of an enormous buzzword in business. I want to ask you, what does it mean? Uh, Does it have content? Does it mean something inherently? And why do you think there remains so much mystique around an interest in this concept or, or at least this word? That's, that's a great question, and I probably could spend three hours answering it, so I'm going to try to condense it to some of the most important points. So the first one, why is this now a timely word? Why is everybody talking about it? Um, and this is based on a lot of reading I've done. Um, there's some very key thinkers, uh, Clayton Christensen at Harvard Business School, Tammy Erickson, who studies uh, the four generations in the workplace. And if you look at the last 15 years, it has probably been the most disruptive time in the history, uh, or at least recorded history. You think about the uh, terrorist attacks, you think about the disruptive companies that have built themselves up tremendously, LinkedIn, Facebook, and so forth. None of these companies existed before the 21st century. They're all post-2000. If you think about it also, Mark Zuckerberg, the youngest billionaire, disrupted the notion that a Harvard degree opens up the right doors. He, like Bill Gates, didn't finish college, and yet he's worth billions of dollars, the youngest self-made billionaire in the history of the world. China has the largest company now in the world, Alibaba. So they've disrupted America's place or or the Western world. Um, And I can go on with many, many, many other reasons why disruption has become quite a thing. The millennials have never, have experienced the world in ways we never did. Yes, we we went through, depending on your age, the assassination of Kennedy, uh, some of the upheavals in the 60s and 70s, but nothing that came one after the other that asked us to completely rethink the world and and how we we, uh, live in it and, and how we experience it. So that's the first point. The second point is disruption has actually been with us throughout history. Um, I like to use the example of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, in my book, is a disruptive entrepreneur. He didn't change religion, our need for religion, or how we even practice it. There were priests and there were temples beforehand. He made one major, two major changes that were highly disruptive. He put in a CEO, i.e. the Pope, and when I say he, it's written in the scriptures, we don't know if he actually did it, but it was a narrative that he recognized that a powerful institution would carry forth his beliefs, i.e. the Roman Catholic Church, and they needed a leader, i.e. a pope who was based in Rome. And the other thing is he established core values for the religion, and that was love yourself, love your neighbor, and love your enemy. That was the disruption to, and the fact that there was one God, and he was the son of God. Um, That's all he really basically did. And out of that grew the Catholic Church the largest and the oldest continually operating organization in the world. And so he was a disruptor and he made a huge transformation. So the, 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 the three or four main rules are whatever you do in the disruption has to be transformative. Thomas Edison with, with the uh, light bulb, uh, moving pictures, Jeff Bezos with e-commerce, um, you know, you name it men and women throughout the ages have transformed the way we live, have increased the standard of of our lives, the way we live our lives. Second one is, inevitably, you're going to cause short-term pain, usually to existing players 
in the system that you're changing. In the case of Jesus Christ, certainly Christianity helped uh, bring down the Roman Empire, although I think they did a pretty good job of doing it themselves. Um, Thomas Edison put basically uh, gaslights out of business, certainly shifted people's money from certain kinds of entertainment into moving pictures. Jeff Bezos put the publishing world basically out of business as we know it, uh, and, and bookstores. You know, you go down the list. There's short-term pain there. People have to adjust to a new system, and people are going to lose their businesses or careers as they knew them because of that. Third one is they really understand that they have to build sustainable organizations. They can't just have crazy ideas. They can't just be leading. You know, you talk about virtual, virtual companies. They recognize that they have to have employees. They have to have followers. They have to have consumers. And so they understand what you put in place to ensure that your organization is sustainable. Core values being one of them, you know, good organizational principles in terms of the roles and defining the roles, understanding what's the value proposition of what they're offering to humanity, and you know, other rules of, of business, finance, good financial controls, and so forth. Uh, and the last one is they have to get a team and an organization in place that is actually going to be able to make the thing happen. So even though they may be following good organizational practices, they still need to make sure that they have a team that is going to do the work and not screw things up. And the best example of, um, of that not happening correctly is with Uber. And we see what happens when you get a bunch of people who are running loose and free and not, not observing the right organizational rules and laws and almost putting the, the company on the brink of uh, extinction. Now, the new CEO is, is fixing the problems, but that's an example of something where you don't do it right. Well, it's interesting that illustration is uh, perhaps just in time for, for Christmas, uh, <laughs> by which we hope to have this episode out. So uh, that was fascinating. I, but I also want to go back to uh, perhaps a less controversial figure, though I grew up when the controversy was hot and heavy. Um, and you mentioned Bill Gates uh, in the preface of your book and making the point that, and, and today in the conversation, in the, uh, the, making the point that some people have tremendous success without a formal degree. And of course, Bill Gates is also listed uh, one of the top 10 college dropouts by Time Magazine. So, you know, this being an educational podcast and the Clark Hewlings Fund being an educational uh, institution uh, providing business training for artists, um, this is fascinating to us because uh, in a way it sort of challenges what, you know, what is the value of, of formal education? So I have a question for you, which is uh, a couple of parts, but I'll ask the first one. So what, if anything, is the value of an MBA in the first place? And I would say that, you know, the Clark Hewlings Fund offers the equivalent of an MBA for artists without all the academic formal trappings of a graduate program, but with all the rigor of a, of a graduate program. So that's our answer, is to train people, but without the symbolic uh, sort of uh, baggage. But what's your answer? How can those without biz formal business training play catch up in the business world, or do they need to, or is there value in it in the first place? So um, let's talk a little bit about the mindset of, uh, of a leader. And when I say leader, I mean disruptive leader, but really I think it goes for anybody who is building something, and that can be anything, it can literally be a building. Uh, but a business, uh, a brand, which is, again, very important to artists that they understand that they have to brand themselves, is this concept of continuous learning. 
So when I was studying what I consider to be the great disruptors and the lesser known disruptors and the would-be disruptors, there's one common thread is they are completely committed to continuous learning. They understand that most of what we know is humanity. They don't even know that they don't know. And they're on a mission to not let themselves get blindsided by the fact that there may be things they don't know. So they surround themselves with people who know stuff that they don't know. They go to events and seminars and you name it, TED Talks, World Economic Forum, to learn something, to come away with something that they didn't understand before, didn't even know that they didn't know. So for me, education, you do not stop just because you have a piece of paper from Harvard or from NYU, that's only the beginning. And you see more often than not, people think that that's all they need and then they're gonna make it and then their careers and the businesses fall apart. And it's because they stopped learning. So for me, that's a perfect example of what makes a great leader, a great CEO, a great business person, or even a great artist. You never, never stop learning. The minute you stop learning is the minute you're going to fail. Well, so I, I like um, the concept of, of learning and you're pointing uh, the concept of learning as not a prerequisite to disruption, but the concept of learning as a necessary reality um, all the way through the process of, of uh, building, growing a business and disrupting. It's not like I need to get an MBA so I can go out and disrupt. Uh, but at the same time, if you stop learning, aside from whether or not it's formal education, uh, then you're not really kind of the kind of person that's going to be a disruptor in the first place. Is that a fair distillation of? Yeah, I, I tie it to disruption, but I have to say a lot of what I learned in my journey of writing the book really, I think, applies to modern day success stories. Um, we use the word disruption. I think you said correctly. It is just a word. It just happens to become a very interesting word these days for some of the reasons I pointed out. But I think in this day and age where we have so much data and information available, the really the key skill set that uh, a business person needs to have is the be, be ability to get insights and to learn and not just be comfortable with a couple of data points and information. Again, this kind of comes back to the conversation of big versus small companies. If a CEO of a small company just relies on data and information, he's not going to go anywhere because quite honestly, there's not going to be enough for them to really figure out in many cases what to do. But if, if the CEO or the owner truly understands what it means to learn and to look for learning constantly in everything they do, anyone they meet, anywhere they go, chances are they're going to find the solutions to whatever questions come up much faster than if they're constantly trying to find data to make decisions with. All right, so let me ask you uh, sort of part two of, of this question, and then I, I want to ask you one more uh, question about the book in this segment. Wh when is it time to disrupt? I mean, do we wait for a pivotal moment in our industry or in history or in commerce, uh, for example, Bitcoin and blockchain is blowing up right now and we're undergoing the birth of, of VR, virtual reality, so maybe there are opportunities to disrupt there. Do we, do we seek the moment to disrupt or do we create the moment to disrupt? Uh, that's an excellent question. Um, and there are a couple of ways to look at this. One is when I say disruption, it doesn't always mean you go into the market and disrupt the market. You can also uh, need to disrupt yourself. So uh, a lot of people, when they come to work with me, find that I have to disrupt their mindset. 
and they don't have a choice often <laughs> because as soon as I hear something counterproductive or a belief that's getting in the way of their growth, uh, I disrupt it. And so there's th that kind of disruption. And that usually happens because someone isn't achieving their goals and they find that or they suddenly understand that they have to find some, some help of, of some for, uh, form. So that's the first kind of disruption. The second one is internal disruption. Here I use the example of Lou Gerstner and IBM when clearly IBM in the early 90s was so off course and they were losing money hand over fist and were very close to going out of business. And the board in its infinite wisdom made a disruptive decision, which doesn't often happen in boards. They said, we're not gonna hire somebody from the technology universe. We're not gonna hire uh, the traditional sort of person who will honor the IBM way of doing things. And they hired Lou Gerstner, who is by, or was by no means a technologist. He had really been, he had been a consultant and had led uh, American Express and Nabisco, so consumer-oriented businesses, not what we call B2B. And in his own admission, the technology part was subsidiary to a much more important thing, which is getting back in line with the market. So he disrupted pretty much everything IBM was doing at the time. He turned their strategy 180 degrees around and said, it's not about the individual piece, it's, it's the whole that's important. And that was based on his knowledge of being a CEO and what his teams needed from a technology provider. And he recognized that the culture of IBM was counterproductive to the modern functioning corporation. And so a lot of his disruption was internal disruption. So changing the culture, uh, changing mindsets. He had to let go about a fourth of the workforce early on because they were not going to fit into the new world. So that's the second kind of disruption. And then the third one that we're talking about is the market disruption. And that's the one that's uh, hardest to pin down. I think most people in the first two forms of disruption, if they're smart and they're committed to themselves and their businesses, recognize when there's a problem. And they go out and they, they search for help. And mostly that help will disrupt what's going on in one way or another. In the third one, it's much harder to pin down. And I developed a bit of a methodology it, uh, you look at the ecosystem that you're in and you ask yourself what needs to change so that the consumer is put at the center and not some self-serving institution. And if we go down the list of some of the industries, uh, I took a hard look at the finance industry. You do realize that in many cases, the consumer, the end user is not at the center of the ecosystem. Very often it's the big banks and they're calling the shots and they're manipulating the markets or uh, manipulating how we get data about the market so that they can stay in control and make money. So I know some people are trying to disrupt that and put the investor or the consumer at the center of the ecosystem. Then there's the disruption of a, a process where you look at the pieces of the process and you say, what can we automate? What can be cheaper? What can be faster? So that consumers get more of what they want. And there are a number of other ways and frameworks of thinking through it. But at the end of the day, it is all about the, the consumer and the end user. Any disruption to be successful has to have the mindset of what do we need to offer our clients, our customers, the consumer that they're not getting, that they want, even if they don't necessarily can, uh, say what it is they want. That's, that's basically the three kinds of disruption. 
That's interesting. You know, you mentioned something near and dear to my heart, uh, which is um, sort of the looking at it as an ecology. And um, so I style myself digital ecologist as my my job title or my my profession more accurately. And um, as a digital ecologist, I look at uh, environments in which we can mirror um, what we see in nature, mirror sort of the evolutionary pattern of what makes a sustainable ecology. And I find that what's disruptive in business um, actually mirrors that natural environment. So uh, when you have a, a healthy ecology in the natural world, all par- and th- this is all also based on sort of a, a denial that there's a, a fundamental distinction between something like the world of business and the world of, of nature, and, and it more situates business in nature. So it's not like we're importing these rules from one foreign country to another. But when you, when you look at nature, if you look at it as that silo, uh, a healthy ecology means that all parties contribute, um, all, they contribute some value. All parties benefit, which means they get some value out. And positive and healthy interaction where there are, are symbiotic, mutually beneficial relationships, those things are, are facilitated. The, the, to the degree that all three of those ingredients are sort of true, um, that is a measurement of the health of the ecology. And to the degree that there's interference in that, there's somebody attempting to insert themselves as a middleman and block one person's receiving a value um, and sort of siphon it off or become the, the unnecessary bottleneck that I facilitate value because it gives me a, a way to survive, but I don't actually create or contribute any value. To the degree that there are middlemen, removing the middleman um, is uh, always an incredible opportunity for disruption uh, because that disruption returns the ecology or, or finally puts the ecology on the path of being sustainable and healthy. So when we look at um, social media as an example, removing the need to have the post office intervene in our ability to communicate (laughs) and our ability to collaborate on projects and our ability to exchange uh, information about um, opportunities we, we like. Um, that's, that's been crazy beneficial. So I, I listen to that as sort of an intro, the, the, the ecological sort of framework, as an intro to my other question about your book. Um, so the subtitle of your book is, it, it's Fearless Disruption, A Guide to the New Realities of Business and Leadership in the 21st Century. And so based on what we're talking about, what are the new realities of business in the 21st century? Uh, excellent question. One thing I want to do is just read you the paragraph that defines an ecosystem. Um, It mirrors a little bit of what you said, but um, this actually comes from James F. Moore, who wrote The Death of Competition, Leadership, and Strategy in the Age of Business Ecosystems. And he says that an ecosystem is a community of interacting organizations and individuals that produce goods and services of value to customers. Members of an ecosystem include suppliers, lead producers, competitors, and other stakeholders. In every ecosystem, there is a leader or a group of leaders valued by the community because they enable members to move toward shared visions to better decide on their investments and to find mutually supportive roles. And what I say is that when somebody disrupts that ecosystem, it's because ultimately the consumer or the end user of the products and services could be better served somehow else. And what you just mentioned was, again, an example of disrupting a process, taking a middleman out or automating part of the process. That's the, the disruption of a, of a process. Now, what are the new realities? I think you know, the obvious one is that 
the digital, the internet has changed just about every role that we can think of um, in terms of cutting out middlemen, in terms of giving everybody in the world you know, billions of internet users access to data and information that they never had before, access to products and, 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 and printed materials in ways that they never had before. Uh, that is probably the biggest single disruption that we'll ever experience in our lifetimes. It's just magnified everything. The fact that, that China and Russia can meddle in our affairs, can hack our computers, can uh, somehow manipulate our political process was unthinkable 20 years ago. It, they, you know, they had spies. It was very uh, manual, the disruption they were trying. But with the internet now, almost anything is possible in terms of disrupting somebody or something somewhere. And um, so that would be, for me, the single biggest reason why we're disruptive. But then now the mindsets have changed, uh, certainly with, with somebody like Trump in the presidency. It's okay to just say whatever you want to say. Um, and I'm neither a supporter nor a naysayer of Trump. I'm fairly agnostic on him. Uh, I don't like the way he communicates, but I do understand some of the things he's trying to do. But he's also just said, look, you don't like something, say it. Don't, don't beat around the bush. Just come out. That's a very disruptive stance. Although in the case of Trump, uh, I always like to say, this disruption could turn into destruction very quickly. And there's always the danger of someone who mindlessly goes out and starts disrupting, that they can actually do more destruction than good. So I hope that answered your question. Oh, it does. Uh, and I, I like sort of the the point embedded in that the disruption for disruption's sake isn't the point it's disruption for the positive benefit of the ecosystem uh, so taking out a middleman or automating a process that's previously laborious uh, such as the invention of um, uh, the vacuum cleaner or, or the washing machine or the automobile um, right. that is a positive disruption well there are negative outcomes obviously of the invention of those things yeah. as well yeah oh yeah um, absolutely that, that for me, are ex example, are excellent examples. My favorite is the printing press. The printing press was, for me, probably the single, single most important disruption um, in the last thousand years because of the knock-on effects. First of all, they put thousands of monks out of business because they no longer had to scribe and paint. The books were now easy to produce. But also the dissemination of information pre-internet was revolutionary. It facilitated everything from advances in medicine to ways that nations communicated with one another, political figures. I mean, it was unbelievable, the revolution, only matched now by the digital revolution we're having now. So that, for me, is the ultimate disruptive invention. But yes, I think the automotive, the lightning bulb, the TV, all those have huge disruptive um, effects on, on the world. And, and yet, uh, to extend that point, you, you look and one could argue the printing press uh, has been both good for us and bad for us in, in many ways, exactly. uh, because much of, the, much of what we see now uh, being put into print, um, you know, complete falsehoods disguised as, uh, as journalism or, or what, we can do harm or we can do great, great things with it. You know, nuclear energy is another uh, thing. So. It's, exactly. It's disruptive, but disruptions can be of both a healthy and ecological type, and they can be of a type that we regret, or they can be some of both, depending on who's handling the <laughs> the disruptive force. 
Um, exactly, I, exactly. It, may, it reminds me of the ancient myths where, you know, they're, they're sort of like, be careful of the power that you hold in your hand because, you know, it can, uh, it can get away from you and uh, it can do harm or, or it can do good things for you. Well, I want to ask you about competition a little bit because, um, you know, again, we mentioned earlier that CHF, uh, the Clark Hewlings Fund for Visual Artists, asserts that all artists are uh, essentially CEOs or at least artists that are interested in doing it um, for reasons beyond merely the love of the art. Um, and so that creates, uh, therefore, art as a field or it styles art as a field in which there are lots of small businesses and lots of CEOs. Um, and so in your experience um, in business as a whole or a, across the span of industries for which you do consulting, what are the main challenges for business owners in a sector in which there is an incredible amount of competition? There are many other sort of ecological players striving for um, very, you know, access to very similar resources. Um, that is also an excellent question. It's a combination of factors. One of it is we come back to what you learn, what you know. You spend enough time thinking about what you're trying to achieve, learning from other people. You know, one of the biggest dangers, I think, especially for artists, but really for anybody who's getting started, is getting out into the world and seeing what's going on. You know, I think there's a danger with, uh, you know, and I live this as a composer, it's very easy to shut yourself behind closed doors and just start creating and again, and then your learning starts to go down, but you're also not seeing what's going on in the world and not reacting and, again, asking yourself fundamental questions. And that leads to then getting clear on exactly what it is you want to achieve. I think what we talk about decisions and really the most powerful thing, somebody trying to start something, whether it's uh, starting life as, a, as an artist who wants to make his living from that, or to build a company is you got to know and you got to be really clear on what exactly it is you want because the danger is you get what you want and if you don't know what you want you're not going to get anything and a lot of people come to me when they have found that somehow it's just not working the way they thought it would and it's because they're actually not clear on what it is they're trying to achieve and i think those are you know some of the most important things to do is get very 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 clear on what you're trying to achieve and once you get that, then you start knocking down doors and, and the walls between you and what it is you're looking to achieve. And I think too many people um, aren't willing to, to really, you know, put themselves out there and to think bigger than they are and to take the risks and to put themselves out in the world. And there's tons of fear. This is why I call it fearless disruptions, although fear is not necessarily always a bad thing because um, that is why we still survive is because of fear. It's a genetic predisposition that has served us very well, but there are also um, irrational fears, fears of looking bad, fears of making a mistake, fear of looking stupid, and so forth, that hem us in from accepting the fact that what we want is okay and we should go out and get it. Um, and there's really nothing standing between us and achieving what we set out as goals except for ourselves. And I think that is what allows people to get out there and start adapting their, their vision and how they're going to go about it to the realities of the situation as long as they have their, their goal and their, 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 their desires clear. And, and I think that's really probably the number one difference between somebody successful and somebody who's less successful. 
I want to ask you, uh, as we sort of wind down this uh, segment, and then I, I want to spend just a few minutes um, asking you a few sort of personal and career reflection uh, questions. Um, but as we get there, I want to ask you one more thing about um, sort of this concept of the CEO, because, you know, we, we're often fighting that battle that just to even say art is a business and artists should run it, um, uh, which also, again, cuts out the middleman in positions. The artist is the value generator is central to the, the ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it scares people and it often goes up against their sensibilities that business is somehow dirty or tainted uh, and that... Um, you know, essentially that making a profit is a sign of, of selling out and all of that has the result that if you accept that premise, it sort of keeps uh, working artists uh, poor. Um, so, of course, one wonders where who, who benefits from that premise, uh, from, from upholding it. But one could argue that when we talk about the term CEO, and I'm not just going for the semantic value of it, but when we say that all artists are essentially CEOs of their own business, and we have this concept of CEO, CEO, um, there seems to have been an, an evolution. At one time, we saw, uh, we defined a CEO as somebody who was more cutthroat, and we we seem to have moved uh, to an understanding of a CEO as somebody who generates value. Uh, so it's a value-driven definition, somebody that contributes mm-hmm. to the ecology. Right. So if I may use an example, uh, Gordon Gecko, fictional character, but certainly summing up a generation's uh, belief about what it means to be a CEO. Back when all the action movies were up against a wealthy industrialist who has plotted against America, you have Gordon Gecko uh, of right. you know Wall Street fame who's in prison, um, and you fast forward away from the Reagan era, the Reagan era and the '80s to now, and you have Jeff Bezos who you mentioned, uh, and Elon Musk, uh, my my favorite of all times, one of my uh, heroes. Um, doing amazing things uh, that regardless of whether one agrees with every labor practice or, um, or likes them personally, uh, certainly have streamlined our access to things and added value uh, back into the market. So my question is, um, are we seeing a seismic shift because of how people regard CEOs um, how people regard the role of business and industry in our lives and how it situates in terms of its social meaning in society. Uh, absolutely. Um, and there are a lot of reasons for that. Uh, I went through that myself, starting out as a composer from a fairly liberal college called Harvard, uh, with the belief that it's only art that can truly transform the world and there was somehow badness attached to business. Um, you know, that was kind of a baby boomer way of looking at, at it uh, until suddenly all my peers in school were getting their MBAs and I realized that indeed there were some realities of life that my attitude as a starving composer was just not serving well. And that's when I decided to do my MBA and, and, and do more business. So I think, you know, I've been through that. I think many people go through that. Uh, as I understand it, you know, MFAs are great in terms of turning out great artists. They do nothing to teach artists about the realities of life. That's, I think, where you come in uh, as an important player to help people realize that life goes on, whether or not you're creating great works of art or not. If you have any intentions of raising a family, having a place to live, you better pretty much figure out that there's going to be some financial needs that have to be met. So um, I think at the end of the day, there has been a shift and with that shift, also business people have learned that um, the softer side of life 
plays a huge role in success or non-success. In fact, there's been studies done that have shown that traditionally businessmen were very, what we call left side of the brain, which is actually not atomically uh, totally correct, but we use it as a construct, by logical, uh, data-driven, um, and so forth, which by nature is not particularly warm and comfy and, and does often lead to people just going for it without really caring too much about uh, the people that could be affected. And the right side of the brain over the last 40 years has become much more important. The more creative, the more uh, cyclical, um, iterative parts of our brain, that are the softer parts, the part that responds to warm stimulus to people, that has become a much, much more prominent part of business over the last 40 years, and it's been studied. And uh, as I said, it's anatomically not entirely correct because the brain is more layered, although there is a left and a right side of the brain. But I think it does tell the story of the fact that we have just become better people, I think, in general, business people and CEOs. So I want to ask you to reflect now uh, just a, a couple of fun questions as we wind down the show. Um, you've worked, John, with businesses all over the world. And uh, so I want to ask you sort of question A, um, what have been the commonalities or common traits you've seen in successful entrepreneurs that actually make them uh, successful? What, what, is, what are the ingredients? Uh, well, as I said, one of them is continuous learning. Uh, and knowing what you want and sticking to your guns, I think uh, you know there are several other components. Resilience is a huge one, <laughs> being able to bounce back because you are going to have failures. I think admitting that something's been a failure is a very important part of becoming a successful uh, CEO or entrepreneur. Is You have to stare failure in the face, admit it to failure, and then move on. And the problem is, of course, we have all sorts of mechanisms built into us as humans to deny, go into denial mode, to not accept a failure, to um, play it down, to soften the blow. And I see often, again, the really truly great entrepreneurs are, yeah, I failed, but I did learn, and this is how I'm going to apply it to the next thing I do. Um, and I think that's a huge component, but it's difficult to understand and see failure because Again, our brain function in a way that it's hard to, to be comfortable in that space, but also because literally if you're in the middle of something failing, it sometimes is very difficult to recognize, is it a true failure or is it a problem that you just haven't found a solution for? But I think uh, you know, that is the thing you see over and over again, resilience in the face of failure and the willingness to stare failure in the face and learn from it and move on. All right, so I'm going to ask uh, the same question, uh, but um, in the reverse. So you've worked with business all over the world. Uh, what leadership patterns do you see? And, and I'm going to get away with asking you the same question again by focusing a little more narrowly on, on leaders in particular and the challenges and foibles and mistakes um, or, or syndromes that occur with them. But uh, you know, whether one is a leader of his own business and the only person there or, or a leader of a lot of teams, what leadership patterns do you see that get businesses into trouble? Uh, get them into trouble or, or are successful? Just want to make sure I understand the question. Uh, the negative. I'm, I'm interested in, you know, you, you've laid out a couple of things that um, help businesses be successful, but I'm wondering um, if there are not uh, perhaps an equal number of things, especially those exhibited by leaders um, that uh, cause a business to suffer economically and, and fail in the market? 
I, I would say the number one thing is not being honest with oneself and not um, going out in the world and seeing what's going on. Uh, I think the worst example are uh, CEOs and entrepreneurs who in their gut know something's wrong and they don't have the intestinal fortitude to go out there and look for help or to see if there's a better way of doing things. Those are inevitably the, the people who go under and, and fail. They're not willing. I, I would say actually probably the single most important thing they don't do, which is something I've seen in my own life, is they're not willing to ask for help. They, they sort of hunker down. They stay in their rooms. They, they're afraid to go out because they're not willing to accept failure, but they're also not willing to accept the fact that they don't have all the answers and that there's probably somebody out there who can help them. So I think that's more often than not the, the, the one thing that leads to, to a downward spiral is not willing to seek, seek help from somebody who can indeed help you. You've been listening to The Thriving Artist Podcast, a feature of the Clark Hewlings Fund for Visual Artists. If you've enjoyed the show, be sure and subscribe and review us on iTunes and Stitcher. For more information on John's work, visit firthandassociates.net. That's Firth, F-U-R-T-H, and associates, plural, dot net. For more information on the Clark Hewlings Fund, visit clarkhewlingsfund.org. To sponsor an artist with your small but impactful gift, visit clarkhewlingsfund.org slash donate. Thank you for listening, and thank you, John. It's been really great having you. Thank you. I enjoyed it very much.